Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 32 tonight. So grab your Bible, turn there, grab your phone, find Exodus 32. That's where we're going to be. I'll start with this. Short-term memory loss is as obvious in the world of sports as any other aspect of our life. And I'm not talking about concussion protocol. I'm talking about fans, GMs, owners that seem to forget the success that certain players, maybe the success that certain coaches even have in the past. Let me illustrate. It's probably not too soon, but it might be. Think about the... Milwaukee Bucks. Two months ago, they got eliminated way too early from the playoffs in the first round. Now, two years earlier, their coach, Coach Bud, led the team to the first championship in team history in 50 years. It was 2021. 2023, they exit the playoffs after round one. And what happens to Coach Bud? He gets fired. He's kicked to the curb. And most fans had the same reaction that Jake did. They were excited about it. I thought it was a little bit reactionary, but that was just one, one guy's opinion, definitely the minority. Or how about this example? Think about maybe the most storied manager in all of baseball. His name's Casey Stengel, the manager of the New York Yankees from 1948 to 1960. He did something as the skipper of the Yankees that no one has repeated. He won the World Series five years in a row. No one's done it before. No one's done it since. But the Yankees got a little tired of manager Casey, 1960, after they lost game seven of the World Series. They fired their manager. They said he was too old. 70 years old, he was too old to manage. Now in 2023, that would be a defamation lawsuit, but it wasn't in 1960. I'm amazed in the world of sports how often we have short-term memory loss. You know that's not just true in athletics. It's true spiritually as well, isn't it? And God's people throughout history have, have suffered with what we might call short-term memory loss. Think about God's people. Think of where we've been in the book of Exodus for a little bit this summer. The nation of Israel, they, they had this dramatic moment on the mountain. They met with God. They saw the fire descend on the mountain. They heard the thunder. They saw the lightning. They received the covenant. They got the 10 commandments. They had this moment and, and then they reply to God and they say, we're going to obey. We're going to do everything that you've commanded us. But then just moments later, it's the the leaders, it's the 70 elders of Israel. They have an even more dramatic encounter. Listen to this in Exodus 24. It says this, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, 70 elders of Israel, they went up to the mountain and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he, God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and drank. You see what happened, right? The 70 elders, those are the, the leaders of the nation of Israel. They had this, this special moment, this special privilege where they met with God. Certainly it was still in a veiled way. And it doesn't even say what they saw. It just says what they saw under God's feet. That was the only thing that they could describe. It was like these sapphire stones. It was like heaven for clearness. In other words, it looked like the presence underneath God, it looked like the blue sky in all its perfection. And the text says that God didn't put a hand on them. They deserved to die, but 
God extended grace, and they have this moment where they eat and drink with God on the top of Mount Sinai. That'd be the greatest picnic of your life, right? It's this covenant peace offering. It it almost foreshadows communion of this moment experiencing this meal with God. That's the leaders. That's, That's the 70 top dogs of Israel. So the people, just moments earlier, all million of them, they meet with God at the base of the mountain. And then the elders, they go up the mountain and they experience the glory and the goodness of God. You would think after that, if they don't hear from God for days, for weeks, for months, no big deal. We met with God. We saw God. We heard God's voice. And we said we'd obey. That that would propel obedience for years to come, don't you think? Well, Moses and Moses, it's time for him to go back up on on top of the mountain. So he packs this backpacking backpack. He prepares for a 40-day journey. 80-year-old Moses, again, climbs to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the law. And he leaves Aaron and her in charge. They're going to settle the disputes among the people. But, you know, if I'm Moses, I'm not too worried. The people just agree to the covenant. They just saw God. They're going to be fine for 40 days. Look at uh, chapter 32 in Exodus verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up, make gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. That verse floors me every time I read it. Are you kidding me? Moses has been gone weeks, maybe days, and they think, yeah, he's kind of old. He's probably over 80 years old too old to make that journey. He probably kicked the bucket on top of the mountain. Did you hear how disrespectful that sounded? I don't know if it's as snarky in Hebrew as it is in English, but as for this Moses, this Moses, that's the guy who rescued you from slavery. That's the guy who God used to do miracle after miracle in the land of Egypt. That's the guy that's led you through wilderness and provided for your needs. This Moses, you're just going to kick him to the curb after a couple days. Yeah, that's what happened. And then they look at Aaron and they say, up, Translate that to 2023. It's like, Moses, or Aaron, time to get off your butt and time to do some work. Time to make some gods for us. And that's exactly what happened. Now think of Aaron. Aaron, and then the men who had his back, the 70 elders. When the people come to Aaron, they're begging for idolatry. They've got a choice. Is Aaron going to lean back on his moment on the mountain? Is he going to remember what God's done? Is he going to remember experiencing the glory of God? Or is he going to give in to what the people demand? Fortunately, you probably know the account, don't you? Look at verse 2. Aaron said to them, Take the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said to him, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of this land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day. They offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. See what's happening. This is a coup. They get rid of Moses. Aaron, you're a new leader. And his first act as their new leader, he makes new gods for them. This isn't just idolatry. This is cosmic treason. He makes a a cow. 
Now, even in the great state of Wisconsin, we would consider that idolatry. And please, please warn Bianca of the dangers of cow worship. (laughs) Did you notice the contradiction in verse 5? Look again in verse 5. He built an altar before it. He made a proclamation, said, tomorrow shall be a feast to who? Does that make any sense? To the Lord. Wait, we're talking about new gods. We're talking about a golden calf. And then he says, we're going to make a feast to the Lord. Aren't those two things contradictory? Well, they are because we often misread and misunderstand the text. We have to understand what's going on. See, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, the idol, the calf, wasn't a god. It was a representation of the deity. It was a representation of God. So what happened for the Israelites is they go to Moses and they say, we want you to make a God for us. The calf wasn't a new God. The calf was their representation of their God, Yahweh. And a cow was actually a logical choice. In that culture, which is kind of a bit surprising to us, but in that culture, a cow was kind of the top of the totem pole. A cow was very highly regarded. So the top of the cow would have been like the pedestal of the God or the pedestal of the gods. What they did is they stooped down to the level of the Egyptians and they made gods, they made a a carved image of a god just like the Egyptians had done, just like the people who God had rescued them from. That's exactly what we see in this text. You know the Ten Commandments? What's the first one? Remember? You shall have no other gods. But what's the second one? You can't make an idol, right? You shall not make a carved image. When we think of the golden calf, we think they're violating the first commandment. They're not. They're actually violating the second commandment. They're making for themselves a carved image of God. And it's an absolute abomination to the Lord. Why? What's the big deal? Why can't we just make something that's a representation of God and we worship that? Because that's ridiculous. That would mean the Israelites are worshiping something that they made. That's man-made. They created it. Anathema to consider that we could create something that's in the likeness of God, likeness of Yahweh, likeness of the God of the universe, the creator and the standard of everything. In no way can we, in our fallen humanness, fashion anything that properly represents him. And over and over again, God says, you can't make for yourself a carved image. The people had already gotten the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. They had already said, we're going to do everything that you've commanded us to do. And then weeks, maybe days later, what happens? They violate the second commandment and they break their covenant. As you can imagine, God's not very thrilled. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt. They've corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it's a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. (laughs) See what's happening. God's looking at Moses and saying, step aside because I'm going to incinerate this entire people group. See, while the Israelites, while they're dancing and throwing this giant party, worshiping this calf at the base of the mountain, 
They have no idea that they are this close from being wiped off the face of the earth. They have no clue. But God calls them a, a stiff-necked people. It's a farming metaphor. I'm not sure if you've ever ridden a horse before. You're riding a horse and the horse gets a stiff neck. You're pulling on its reins. You're trying to tell it where to go. And the horse is essentially telling you, that's the last place I want to go. I'm going to go exactly where I want. I'm going the opposite direction. That's how God's describing the people. They're stubborn. They're selfish. They're not doing what their master, what their God has asked of them. And now they are this close from extinction. Look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he'd spoken, bringing on his people. Put yourself in Moses' shoes for a second. If God looked at you and said, I'm going to wipe this people out. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. How many of us would have said, deal? That sounds kind of cool. <laughs> Not Moses. Moses takes on the role of intercessor, of mediator. In the most gracious, the most humble way, he goes to bat for his people and says, God, remember what you did. Remember the Egyptians? If you destroy them, they're going to laugh and say, why did God bring them out of Egypt just to wipe them out in the wilderness? Remember the promise you made to, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Don't wipe out your people. And what happens? God relents. God changes his course. Do you hear that? Is that even possible? It sounds like God changed his mind. what it says, isn't it? That's probably the simplest way to read the word relents, that God changed course. What do we do with that? How do we reconcile God relenting, God changing course with a high view of God with God's sovereignty? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. See, this is another example in Scripture of an anthropomorphism, a fancy word of saying ascribing human attributes to God. The author is trying to to get us to understand in a human way and in human language what, what happened in this text. But on one hand, God can't change his mind. God's sovereign. He's sovereign over everything. God knows not only the future, he controls the future. He, he knows the what ifs about the future. He's sovereign overall. He can't change his mind. But wait, what about prayer? Prayer is powerful and effective. God responds to the prayer of his people. How can God be sovereign over everything and still respond to our prayer? How can God know the future and control the future, but then answer our requests? Yeah, that's way above my pay grade. <laughs> this is one of those things that would fall in our the theological mystery box. It's how can God be sovereign and then in this text relent of disaster? How can he change course and still know the future and control the future. 
I'm not sure, but in this case, both are true. I'm comfortable reading a text and saying something like this from my perspective, which is a limited, finite human vantage point. It appears from my perspective that God changed course, but in no way does that reduce his sovereignty and his control of the future. That's the best way I can answer what we see in this text. But as the text continues, Moses leaves the presence of God, hikes down the mountain and returns to the people. Look at verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back, they were written. The tablet work of God the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he, Moses said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burnt hot. He threw the tablets out of his hands, broke them at the at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they'd made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered down the water and made the people drink it. Can you imagine? Moses is carrying these two tablets of stone in his hand. The text went out of its way to say that they were carved by the very hand of God. It's a work of art, isn't it? It's not every day that you get to carry a piece of art that God made. And what does Moses do out of his anger? Shatters it on the ground thousand pieces. But that's a spiritual picture, isn't it? On the tablets of stone were likely the Ten Commandments. And as Moses shatters the covenant, it's a picture of the people abandoning their covenant with God. What they'd agreed to follow, the stipulations that they agreed to, to follow, they threw out the window in a matter of weeks, maybe even days. And the covenant was gone. And there Moses is left to pick up the pieces. And then Moses takes the gold, he burns the calf down, shaves it into powder, he puts the gold in the water supply and makes the people drink it. Right? Like 3,000 years before Gatorade, we have Cowade, right? <laughs> There's your dad joke of the day. Yeah, don't write that one down. It wasn't very good. And did that taste good? No, it probably tasted disgusting. I was talking to one of our pastors before, You'll notice as we keep reading, God actually brought a plague on the people of Israel. We don't know what it was, but it's even possible that the plague was caused by metal poisoning from drinking the gold. Not sure. Keep reading in the text. This is my favorite, hands down my favorite part of the text. Verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? At least Moses gives Aaron the benefit of the doubt, right? He's asking him, like, did they hold you at knife point? Did they hold you at gunpoint? Did they bribe you with a million dollars? Like, what in the world did this people do to you to get you to do this? Oh, Aaron. Verse 22. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They're set on evil. They said to me, make us gods who shall go out before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> no, you have to be kidding me. He had days, maybe weeks to come up with a better excuse than that. And that's all he's got. 
I just threw gold in the fire. Now came this calf. Like that's one of the best bars in all of scripture. That's incredible. And Moses, Moses doesn't even reply. He doesn't even give him a response. Oh, man. So as you keep reading the text, you'll see that God brings about discipline on his people. He uses the Levites to actually bring capital punishment onto a handful of the people. And then there's a plague. We don't know how many people die in each. We see a balance in this text of God's wrath and his grace. God's punishment and his discipline, but also of his forgiveness and restoration. And we'll see that come full circle next week as we look at the next two chapters. But I want us to think for a moment. I want us to focus on the people. It's what amazes me in this account. It's days, weeks after the most dramatic mountaintop experience of their entire lifetime. They met with God. They heard God. They received the law from God. They saw the fire, the thunder, the lightning, everything. And days and weeks later, it didn't matter. They throw it all out the window. They experience what many of us long for, an actual, visible, physical encounter with God. And then they do the exact thing that God forbid them to do. If this isn't a hit my head against the wall moment in Scripture, then there aren't any. And I think it's easy for me, it's easy for us to point our finger at the Israelites and say, how dare you? But as I look at the rest of Scripture, and as I look in the mirror, I think we do the same thing. Think, think about Adam and Eve. They're created without sin. <laughs> Must be nice. They walk with God in the garden. They experience a perfect relationship with God. And they receive probably what you and I wish we had. One crystal clear rule. Just one from God. Don't eat of that tree. It's the only thing. And they believe a lie. They eat of the fruit of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat of. And we have sin and death and destruction that enters the world. But they experienced the goodness of a perfect relationship with God and they abandoned it for a lie. How about, bless you, how about, how about King Solomon? He's a young king, inherits his father's throne, and God appears to him in a dream. Solomon, I'll give you whatever you want. In a very humble answer, Solomon asked for what? Wisdom. Very humble. And God gives him wisdom and then gives him everything else that everyone else would have asked for. The power, the money, everything. But I find it ironic, Solomon often heralded as one of the wisest men he kind of fell off the wagon, especially in his love life. 600 wives, 300 concubines. That's too much. That's like, <laughs> that's like 899 too much if we're doing the math, right? He fell off the wagon. Even after he encountered God, a vision, we'd like that, wouldn't we? Or maybe of a different example Think about John the Baptist. He had the Holy Spirit in him when he was in the womb. He's Jesus' cousin. And he goes out and he's preaching in the wilderness. The text says that all of Judea comes out to be baptized by John the Baptist. 
He was part of the megachurch movement 2,000 years before it started. And then what happens? He baptizes Jesus. And he has this moment where it's as clear as day that, that Jesus is, this is the guy. Well, things kind of go downhill for John. He's in prison. He's about to be beheaded. He doesn't know it yet. And he has this crisis of faith. He finds his disciples, sends his disciples to Jesus' disciples and says, you've got to ask. Ask Jesus, is he the guy or are we supposed to be looking for somebody else? When he found himself in the valley, John, who Jesus says, he was the most righteous person ever to be born of women. That's kind of the best compliment you could ever get from Jesus, right? Even John in the valley had a crisis of faith. Even John doubted. Our text, in that text, those examples, our text tonight helps illustrate our first principle that spiritual highs don't produce spiritual fruit. Spiritual highs don't produce spiritual fruit. It's easy to point a finger at the Israelites. It's easy to point a finger at Adam and Eve, Solomon, many others who <laughs> fell off the wagon after an, a dramatic encounter with God. But if we're honest, don't we do the same thing? I mean, think about some of the ways that we might encounter God in a special way, in a new way at Highlander within young adults. Think about the Winter Conference. Think about the No Regrets Men's Conference. Or if you grew up in G180, Districts Youth Conference. A moment maybe where we, we meet with God, where we encounter God and we feel close to God in a way that we haven't maybe in a year. Maybe you've been there. But then what happens? There's a sin struggle in your life that you make a commitment that weekend. I'm finally going to kill this. I'm finally going to get my hand on this. And then two weeks later, back doing the same thing. Maybe it's a mission trip like our Mexico trip. You experience the joy of being used by God. You, you see how God used you to impact students for the rest of their life. You felt the joy of, of being poured out, being spent for the sake of the gospel. You came home so full. You said, I'm going to read my Bible every day for the next year. <laughs> I'm going to wake up early and pray for 15 minutes every day before work. And four days in, yeah, the Bible reading plan isn't happening and prayer's not happening either. Maybe it's a retreat, like our Up North retreat coming up in just under two weeks. You have an incredible weekend unplugging from the world, connecting in community, the, the quiet time, just you feel like you're meeting with God and you're convicted that relationship, you've been crossing some boundaries with your significant other and you're ready to finally say, no, we're going to draw the line, not going to cross that boundary. Even have a conversation, the two of you. And then two weeks later, same thing happens again. Have you been there? I think we all have, haven't we? Why? Why, after experiencing God on the mountain, do we find ourselves in the same place we were before? Because spiritual highs don't produce spiritual fruit. We get lulled to sleep after the mountaintop. We get spiritually prideful. We forget that pride comes before a fall. Don't assume that after having a moment with God that you're above falling back into old habits and old sin patterns. See, after we experience God on the mountain, we have to be more diligent, not less diligent, in our fight against sin. Why? Because after the mountaintop, 
the enemy comes ready to attack. When our guard's down, when we're overconfident, that's when the enemy comes. Often we memorize 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man, but God's faithful. He will let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. You know that verse, right? A great verse. Sometimes we forget the verse that comes right before it. Listen to verse 12. Therefore, let not anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We've got to be careful that we're not prideful. After mountaintop experience, thinking that we're above, going back to the habits, the temptation, the sin that plagued us before. As followers of Christ, we have the ability to resist every temptation, but we can still give in to any temptation. We have the ability by the Spirit to say no to every sin, but we still have the capacity to commit any sin because of the reality of our sinful flesh. We can't be defeatists who don't even show up for battle, battle because we don't think we can win, but at the same time, we can't be so spiritually arrogant that we assume we'll win every battle that we face without even having to try. We have to understand the tension between our new heart and our old heart. And that's our second principle tonight. Understand the inclinations of your heart. Understand the inclinations of your heart. Think of David. King David, he was called a man after God's own heart. <laughs> Yet, what did David do? He committed a pair of sins that we probably would say, I will never do that. Yet, he was still a man after God's own heart. He wasn't above committing the sin. He missed understanding the inclination of his heart. Or think of the pages of church history. Some incredible examples, men and women who've gone before us, who've walked with the Lord with faithfulness, but with perfection, certainly not. Martin Luther, 1517, he nails the 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, and the Reformation begins. Incredible man of faith who believed that the truth of Romans 117, that the just shall live by faith. But Martin Luther was certainly not a perfect guy. <laughs> you read about Luther, he was, a, he was a hothead. No one, almost no one liked Luther. Um, and his anti-Semitic tendencies were anything but biblical. Think of Calvin and Zwingli, a pair of great reformers, incredible theologians. Also, neither one of them were what we would call nice people. They actually both approved of the death penalty for their theological opponents. Um, not maybe a good idea. Or think of Jonathan Edwards, who many consider to be probably the most prominent Puritan and most influential Puritan pastor in our nation. He's read by many still today. Incredible theologian. Do you know that he was a New England slave owner? It's a blind spot for him. So what do we do with Calvin and Zwingli and Edwards and Luther? And the list could go on and on. Do we just <laughs> take all of their writings and throw them out the window because of the blemishes that they had? I agree. <laughs> no, I'm not an advocate for cancel culture, though I think we need to recognize their victories. We need to recognize the good things that they taught and hold fast to those while still admitting and also learning from their shortcomings, reminding you, reminding me that we also have blind spots, that we can never look at a church leader 
a theologian, a pastor, a discipler, a mentor, and elevate them to this non-human level. All of us are broken reflections of a perfect Savior. None of us reflect Jesus perfectly. And when we look to people to be that perfect reflection of Christ, we will be let down every single time. We can't elevate a church leader or even yourself to that non-human level. Don't forget what Jeremiah says about our hearts. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Who can understand it? I think Jeremiah there is actually talking about a heart that doesn't yet have the Spirit, a heart that hasn't yet been transformed. But he still gives us a glimpse of the, the sinful inclination, the desire of our heart. We have the Spirit, but we still battle the flesh. When we become a Christian, we don't have to fear the penalty of sin, but we are still influenced by the power, the presence of sin, both in our hearts and around us. Think of what James says, sinful desires actually come from inside of us. We still battle the flesh, and you and I need to be aware of these sinful inclinations that are in our hearts. The Israelites were tempted to worship a cow. And you know, that probably makes us laugh, doesn't it? Like, who in their right mind would worship a cow? Sorry, Bianca. No, just kidding. But here's the deal. If I call up Michael J. Fox and we get the DeLorean time machine, travel back to 10, uh, 10 centuries prior to Christ, and we bring back an average Israelite to 2023, I guarantee that she would be laughing way harder at us than we would be at them. You know why, right? Be like, what are you doing? You worship this little box that you pull out of your pocket? It lights up and you stare at it for three or four hours a day. What is wrong with you? That's what they'd say, right? I think they'd think we're crazier. They'd think that we're crazier than we think they are, right? And it might not just be worship of our phone. Don't we struggle with mirror idolatry of self-worship? We set ourselves up on these thrones of our own little kingdoms, and we do what we want, when we want, we spend our hard-earned money the way that we spend our money, and anybody that gets in the way of that becomes our enemy. We call it freedom. How often does that freedom actually become idolatry of self, where we're our own kings and queens of our own kingdoms? No, when we turn to Christ, Jesus becomes our king, and we get off the throne. I wonder how often we try to push Jesus off the throne and take the seat that we've given to him. Maybe it's not idolatry. Maybe there's other areas that we struggle with. I'm convinced that all of us have one, two, three areas where we might be inclined to sin. Maybe it's a weak spot in our armor. It's a temptation that comes back for our life. We all have them. My areas are different than yours, but we all have them. What are they for you? Do you know them? Do you recognize them? Maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe you're tempted with alcohol. If that's you, then why are you even flirting with alcohol at all in the first place? Shouldn't be part of your life. Maybe it's lust or sexual sin. If that's the case, then why don't you have accountability software on your phone? Or why are you and your significant other alone in your apartment at 11 o'clock midnight? Maybe it's materialism. If that's your, your tendency, your temptation, then why are you spending 
30 minutes or an hour a day on Instagram? Why are you continually scrolling through Facebook Marketplace or visiting TJ Maxx twice a week? Maybe you're tempted toward the love of money. If that's the case, then why are you checking the stock market five or six times a day and checking your portfolio value twice a week? We have to know the areas we struggle. We have to know the areas we're tempted so we can set up boundaries to protect ourselves, especially after a spiritual high. Because the mountain's coming. The spiritual high, that moment is coming. We've got to be ready for it. So the question is, how, how do I prevent this? How do I take that moment on the mountain? And instead of it just being a, a spiritual high, how does that become a, a catalyst for growth? So as we wrap up tonight, I have five ideas on how we can make a spiritual high a catalyst for for spiritual growth. Here's the first. We have to remember that the spirit, not a spiritual high, produces lasting fruit. See the difference? Lasting fruit comes not from an experience, not from an emotion, not from a conference. Lasting growth comes from the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. And sometimes the moments on the mountain, they can either be emotional or they can be spiritual. Think about the emotional moment on the mountain. Maybe you've seen it before. I certainly have. I remember going to youth conference once. I went to a lot of conferences uh, with students when I was in high school. I was at one one time, and there was a student there I got to know who was on the fence. And everybody knew he was on the fence. He knew he was on the fence. And everybody was praying, even as youth leader, youth pastor, was praying that he would get off the fence and he would say, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. And it's Saturday night at the youth conference. And you know what happens on Saturday nights if you've gone to districts, right? They share the gospel, an incredible gospel presentation, and then the band gets up and the band starts playing this like emotional power ballad. And the pastor has everyone's eyes closed, heads bowed, and, and has people raise their hand or, or stand up if they want to accept Christ, right? Maybe you've been there. And I remember that moment that this the student, he didn't stand up. He was sitting there. He's on the fence. Everybody knew he was on the fence. Didn't stand up. And his very, very well-intentioned youth pastor walked over, put his hand on his shoulder, and in a non-creepy way started rubbing his back. And what do you think he did? He stood up. Now, I don't know where his heart sat, um, but it didn't surprise me to see that doesn't seem like he's still walking with the Lord. Kind of looked like an emotional moment, didn't it? That's a little different than a spiritual moment. And when we're on the mountaintop, we want to remember that true lasting growth comes not from a feeling, not from an emotion, but through the Holy Spirit. And you and I don't just have access to the Spirit on the mountaintop. If we know Christ, we have the Spirit dwelling inside of us. We have him all the time. We don't need to go to a special place, a special conference, a special camp to experience the Spirit. Maybe you can think of it this way. Um, my in-laws have, maybe you've heard me use this analogy before, they have uh, pedal assist bikes. It's like an electric bike. But to engage the, the motor, you actually have to pedal. It doesn't propel itself, but as soon as you start to pedal then the bike starts to move and you can actually feel the, 
the engine begin to, to push you forward. In some way, ways, I believe that's how sanctification, the spiritual disciplines work in our life. The Holy Spirit who's in us is eager to, to push us, to make us more transformed in the image of Christ. But in many ways, he's just waiting for us to pedal. And that pedaling, it takes some momentum, doesn't it? It takes some time. Sometimes that first push, sometimes that second push can be really hard. But we engage in the disciplines because we know that the Spirit is eager to grow us to look more like Christ. For me, after the mountaintop, we've got to engage in the disciplines. We've got to spend time in community. We've got to spend time in the Word. We've got to spend time in prayer. Not as a way to check the box, but as a way to continue that momentum forward. We have to remember that spiritual growth comes from the spirit, not a spiritual high. That's the first, by far the longest. Here's the second. Initiate real change on the mountain. Maybe you're at the retreat in a couple weeks and you're convicted over an area of sin in your life and, and you're ready to make a change and you're genuinely excited to make a change. It's on the mountaintop we have to start initiating real change. What you do is you find a friend, you find a leader, and you confess that sin to them, and then you start making a plan on the mountaintop how you're going to overcome that sin. Instead, what many people do is they get to the mountaintop, they face conviction, they make a commitment, God, I'm going to turn from this, but they never verbalize, they never say anything. There's no one that can come alongside them in, in community to encourage them, and they do this. We've got to initiate that real lasting change while we're on top of the mountain. And then third, we have to set realistic goals. <laughs> You know what happens? You go to Mexico, you go to the retreat, and I'm going to read the whole Bible in the next three months. Okay, that might be a little aggressive, though some of you have probably had goals like that. And what happens three or four days in? You kind of fall flat because you realize, maybe I set the bar too high. And then if you're anything like me, when I set the bar too high, I don't just lower the bar, I abandon the bar, right? So maybe it's a better idea to lower the bar and say, I'm going to make a realistic goal. I want to read the Bible, maybe not every day. Why don't I start to aim for five days a week? I'm just going to try to read a chapter a day for five days a week. I'm going to make it a realistic goal. And then once we start meeting that goal, then let's raise the bar instead of continually lowering the bar. It's not very good for self-esteem, is it? <laughs> Set realistic goals. That's the third. Number four, pour out after being poured in. One of the best ways that we can prevent this and do this is to find ways to serve and use the gifts that God's given us to be poured out after we're poured in. It's one of my favorite things about our Mexico trip. I see so many of you pour out, pour out, pour out on the trip, which means you're poured into, and you come back on this, this like spiritual euphoria, right? You're just excited about what God's doing. And then to see you carry that over into G180 and carry that over to One Way Club, Pouring out after we've been poured into is a great way to continue the momentum. And then finally, we've got to prepare for battle while we're on the mountain. I think sometimes we forget that when we get home, that the enemy is going to be standing on our front door ready to attack. We've got to prepare. We don't have to be defeatists. We have every tool we need to, to win every spiritual battle we face. But we've got to be prepared for battle. We've got to put on the armor of God We've got to have those brothers and sisters in our corner who are ready to do battle with us. Don't let the spiritual high drop off. 
when that moment comes down the road, allow that moment on the mountaintop to be a catalyst for growth. Let me pray. Father, so much that we can glean from a text like Exodus 32 um, reveal to us the inclinations of our heart where we might be inclined toward idolatry, where we might be inclined to replace you with something in our life or even ourselves. Father, reveal those to us. May we be quick to both confess and repent and to put you on the throne of our hearts in every aspect of our life. So as we take some time to talk a little bit in our small groups tonight, ask that you might guide and direct our time. In Jesus' name, amen.